Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Genesis chapter 15. start with uh, verse 1 if you want to follow along with me. After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying do not be afraid Abram I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. And so if you've just been here if this is the first Sunday you're here we're reading after these things well after what things? Well if you go back to to, uh, chapter 14 of Genesis um, Abraham He's called Abram at this time, but he's Abraham. His name will later be changed. Um, he's just rescued Lot and the inhabitants of Sodom who have been taken captive by these kings. There's, there's all these kings of five kings against four kings, and they, they, they took all these men and families and livestock and everything captive and all the inhabitants of Sodom, and Lot had been living in Sodom at the time. And, uh, and so uh, Abram had just come miraculously. He got 318 of his servants they went, they, they married militarily, whatever they did was brilliant, but it was God who, who blessed them, God who supernaturally gave them uh, victory. By the way, you know what's really interesting about that? In Genesis chapter 13, verse 13, we're told that the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And yet, think about it, God allowed Abraham to have a victory in delivering the men of Sodom, the people of Sodom, that were extremely wicked. I mean, it just shows us God's mercy and his grace towards sinners. Um, So anyway, so Abraham, they have a a miraculous, um, and we talked about it last week, just a miraculous deliverance. They bring uh, Lot and all the inhabitants back, and and, uh, after that, and we talked about that last week also, um, Melchizedek. A very strange person that only shows up like three times in the Bible. Every thousand years, by the way, he shows up in the Bible. Uh, his name does. And, and he comes and he meets Abram as Abram's coming back from this, from this battle. And he's blessed uh, by Melchizedek and encouraged by Melchizedek. And Melchizedek brings bread and wine and uh, the, the picture of, of communion. And he's a type of Christ in the Old Testament. In fact, I think it might even have been a, a pre incarnate appearance of Christ, possibly. But that, this has happened. I mean, what a high point to have a, a battle, a victory over, over the, these enemies, and then, and then to be blessed by this great person, Melchizedek. Um, not only that, but after that, the king of Sodom comes to Abram. And uh, he wants, he basically says, give me the persons, give me the souls, it says in the Old Testament, in the King James, and take the goods for yourself. A picture of the devil, really. Um, and, and so he's got this temptation to receive all these, this wealth and this material stuff from uh, <clears throat> the king of Sodom. And, and uh, Abram says, man, I've raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So, I mean, what a, what a wonderful thing for Abram to say in the face of temptation. And so we have this, this miraculous victory, uh, this, this blessed time with Melchizedek. What an encouraging time. And then he, you know, he withstands temptation. 
Sometimes you and I, you know, in our walks with the Lord, we have these great victories in our life, right? We, we, maybe we've been tempted in some way and we've been able to withstand the temptation. And it's like, wow, finally, thank you, Lord, for giving me the victory. Or we've just maybe, you know, like we go to a men's retreats or women's retreats sometimes. And, uh, you know, we come back and you're just so blessed and so encouraged and everything. Uh, but, you know, we have those highs, but then sometimes we have lows, right? Things just happen and, and uh, things get really, you know, they're hard and stuff. And so what's the word of the Lord to Abram? Do not be afraid. Now, what's interesting to me is obviously God knows his heart. And so obviously Abram was afraid. Why was he afraid? I mean, he went from victory and now it seems like he's in defeat. You know, he has those highs and those lows in life. And, you know, that is life, right? We have highs and lows in our lives. I think of Elijah. Remember Elijah there on Mount Carmel with, the, uh, with all the 500 prophets of Baal. And what a miraculous thing that happens. And God shows up in a mighty way and they, they kill all the prophets of Baal. And then he, and he's, he's leaving from that great victory. He finds out that Queen Jezebel is after him and wants to kill him. And he runs and he hides in a cave and he's like, I'm the only one alive, you know, and you know, of the prophets and stuff. And, and he going from this great victory to this defeat or this seemingly defeat anyways. Simon Peter in the New Testament. Remember, he had that great revelation, you know, when Jesus said, hey, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're, you know, the prophet. Some say you're this. Some say you're that. And, and Jesus says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter says that great, that great thing. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What a, what a blessed thing. Not only that, but, you know, when, when Jesus is there in, in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's arrested and, and Peter, man, in, in bravery and, and chivalry, you know, he wants to cut the guy in half, though. He misses, but he cuts off the guy's ear, right? I mean, he, he's brave. He's standing up and stuff. And yet later on, that night, later on, a servant girl going to say hey you look you're you're one of the naz you're one of the galileans you, you your voice gives you away and everything and he swears up and down i don't know the man he went from this great victory to this low defeat or this sense of defeat and so after all abram's victories his high points abram became afraid now why would abram be afraid well you've got to think about it i mean in, in a sense he was hopeless Right? He didn't have fortified buildings. He lived in tents the entire time he was in Canaan. He was a very, very wealthy man, and yet he still lived in tents. He didn't build this palace for himself. Why? Because Hebrews tells us he was looking to that eternal city. He was looking to the promised inheritance. So, but he's homeless. He's basically out there in the open. I mean, they're in tents. And uh, so, you know, there's not much defense when you're in a tent. Um, he had a promise of the land, but we're told in scriptures that the land was filled with Canaanites. Uh, there's all these other people. It's like, yeah, you've given me the land, but these people live here. Not only that, um, but he was vulnerable to attack. And why would he even be vulnerable to attack? Well, think about it. You know, he may have came into Canaan as, as sort of an anonymous person, a traveler, but now he's got a reputation. Now he has enemies because he's just defeated all these kings. And so maybe now he's like, oh, you know, they're, one of these days they're going to come and they're going to get me. And I'm out here in the open. I'm exposed. And so obviously in some way, Abram was afraid. And so God's word, and you know, I love it. God knows our hearts and he speaks to our needs. And God speaks to Abram and says, Abram, don't be afraid. You know, the other thing Abram might have been afraid of while well, thinking about it, you know, 
He was childless, right? Uh, if something happened to him, what would happen to God's promises of descendants, that, he would, that Abram would be a father of descendants, you know? And, and he's childless. If, if he gets killed there on the open plain, what, what's going to happen? And so the Lord says, I am your shield. Notice that God didn't say, I will provide you with a shield. He says, I am your shield. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Let me ask you this morning, is Jesus your shield this morning? Are you looking to him for your strength? Jesus, uh, the Lord also told Abram, I am your exceedingly great reward. Again, not I'm going to provide you with a reward, but I'm your reward. In Lamentations, Jeremiah writes this in chapter 3, verse 24, The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. Think about it. You know, if everything that you trust in, everything that you have was taken away from you, would that, would that be like you'd be like totally devastated, totally brought to nothing? Or would you have the Lord? I have my relationship with the Lord. I have eternal life. The Lord is my portion. He's my reward. And so the Lord says to Abram, Lord, it says, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Verse 2, but Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Uh, that was a kind of a, a, a cultural thing in those days. If, if you didn't have children and you had, you know, it would go to the next, like the next best person, which in this case was a servant of Moses, or excuse me, of Abram. Abram was 75 years old, we find out a few chapters earlier, when he left Haran. How much time had passed until now, we don't know. But, I mean, he's 75 years old at least, probably a little bit older. And, uh, you know, he's probably thinking, you know, God's given me this problem, but, man, I'm childless, and uh, I'm not getting any younger. And he says, you know, I go childless. Now, what does it mean, I go childless? I'm traveling around childless. Well, it could mean that. But it could also, the Hebrew even supports that it mean, could mean that he's going the way of all the earth. In other words, I'm going to be dying pretty soon. And I still don't have a child. You know, you know you're getting older. And I've, I've been realizing this. You know you're getting older when it's not how much can I amass in my life. It's, it's when you get to the point where you go, what do I have to leave to my children? And, and Abram's probably feeling this way. I'm, I'm getting old. I, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be around. What do I have to give? To, I don't even have descendants yet. Think about it. The Lord had promised Abram descendants. Back in chapter 12, verse 2, he, the Lord told Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. Not even you're going to have a kid. I'm going to make you a great nation. In verse 7 of chapter 12, he says, to your descendants, I'm going to give this land. In chapter 13, verse 15 and 16, says, All the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever, and I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. So Abram had all these promises of these descendants, and he's thinking, man, I'm going to be leaving this life soon, and I still don't have any children Everything's going to go to this heir. He's a good servant, but he's not my descendant, this Eliezer of Damascus. And so what did the Lord do? Verse 5. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven 
and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. You know, I like that. You know, who knows where exactly this is taking place, but but from wherever Abram was, maybe in his tent with all the people around him, the Lord brings him outside. And sometimes, you know, we have to get away from distractions, and the Lord wants to speak to us. And so he pulls us aside, and it's just you and him. And it was just Abraham and the Lord out here. He brings him away out from distractions. I'm presuming he was probably alone at this point. And the Lord says to Abram, Hey, Abram, look up into the sky. Look towards heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your descendants be. Well, let's think about how many stars can you see with the naked eye? And you know, I love Google. I don't know if it's true or not. I don't know if everything's accurate, but I, I Googled how many stars can you see with the naked eye? And you got to think about it. Back in that day, uh, there was no smog, no city lights, so they probably saw more. But in today, in our environment, how many stars can you see with the naked eye? It depends on the season, first of all. I discovered that. But from one hemisphere, so one half of the Earth, you can see with your naked eye without a telescope between 45, well, 4,548 to 6,800 stars. It doesn't sound like a whole lot of stars, right? Not even 7,000 stars. That's what you can see with your naked eye. 2003... These scientists did these estimates, and they estimated that there are 70,000 million, million, million stars in the universe. That's, uh, what is that? That is uh, seven with 22 zeros behind it. So as I don't know if that's seven to the 22nd power. I forgot my math, or maybe seven to the 21st power. But anyways, that's a lot of stars. There's a lot of stars, and they estimated it. You know what's cool? In Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, the word of the Lord tells us one of those stars is the bright and morning star, Jesus Christ. Well, anyways, one of his descendants would be. Think about that. 70,000 million, million, million stars in the universe. That's incredibly vast. Think of a powerful God that could create, and the Bible even says he named those stars and placed them there. The, the, the awesome power and majesty of God. And yet, you know what I also I discovered when I was looking it up? The same thing that I was reading about the stars, it says the, the 70,000 million, million, million stars. It says that's the same number of water molecules in just 10 drops of water. What? Amazing. In just 10 drops of water, there's that many molecules. You know, think about it. We are surrounded by vastness. I mean, on a macro scale, you know, that many stars but also on a micro scale, how small. And, you know, you think of how many stars. I, that th- I just think about the power of God. Uh, but when you think of the fact that there's that many in just 10 drop, that many water molecules in 10 drops of water, think about the detail of God. You know, the Bible says that the hairs on our head are numbered. All of us. The hairs on our head. Some, God has an easier count with some of us than others, but... The hairs on our heads are numbered. The Bible says a single sparrow doesn't drop from the sky without, apart from the Lord's knowledge and his will. It's amazing, the detail of God. You know, later on in Genesis chapter 22, the Lord's going to again speak to Abram and say, hey, count the grains of sand, and if you can count them, that's going to be the number of your descendants. Now, Again, I Google it again. There's estimated to be 7.5 times 10 to the 18th grains of sand on this planet. 
And so what is the Lord saying? You're going to have 7.5 times 10 to the 18th descendants? I, I don't think so. The point is not these exact numbers. The point is, Abram, you're going to have so many descendants that you're not going to be able to number them. There's going to be so many of them. And so verse 6, it says, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Now, Abram didn't merely believe God's promise. It doesn't say he believed God's promise, although he did. It's more than that. It wasn't just that he believed God's words. It says that he believed in the Lord himself, the Lord who had promised. And the Lord accounted it or imputed or calculated it to Abram for righteousness. Simply believing in the Lord himself. There's no works from Abraham's standpoint. It's just believing in the Lord. You know, the New Testament, this is such a pivotal verse. The New Testament refers back to this, this moment in time, this verse all over in scriptures. Faith in the Lord is the basis for your and my salvation. It's the basis for our righteousness. Paul writes this, in Romans 4, verse 17 through 25, he says, As it is written, he's speaking about Abram, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him who he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope, believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. It's awesome. But he continues, Paul continues, says, but not, now it was not written for his sake alone that it was appoint, imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Just believing in the Lord, in righteousness is imputed to us. Believing in what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. What great faith that Abram had. You know what I like about the story of Abram? I mean, I don't like it on behalf of Abram, but I like it on my behalf. is because Scripture, after this point, Scripture is going to reveal a few times where Abram's faith is going to waver. In fact, in the next chapter, chapter 16, there's going to be a little bit of wavering. And then later on, there's going to be some more wavering. You know, the Bible doesn't say the Lord took away Abram's righteousness because he doubted and he had, you know, he wavered and he stumbled in his faith. Because isn't that what life is? I mean, we stumble sometimes. We, sometimes we doubt. Sometimes we get a little, oh, you know. And yet, we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're saved. We have eternal life. We've been bought and paid for. What a blessing that is. The Lord didn't take away Abram's righteousness. So I'm encouraged because, you know, you could even say, well, if you have great faith, it almost becomes works, right? Well, I've got great faith, so now the Lord's going to count it to me for righteousness. Yeah, but Abraham's faith, it was like yours and mine. It it had highs and lows in it. Well, verse 7 says, Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. Verse 8, and he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And when you read that, doesn't it sound like Abram's doubting the Lord? 
you know, I, I was looking at this and I'm just going, okay, now, I mean, he just had this great, you know, this verse about him that, that he believed in the Lord and was accounted him for righteousness. God tells him this promise. He says, Lord, how's, how's it going to happen? Is he doubting the Lord? What do we know from scripture? Uh, by the way, you go to the commentaries, they don't help. <laughs> they, they have all these, you know, some, they say all different stuff. What do we know from scripture? Well, I can tell, reading verse 9, that he wasn't rebuked by the Lord. The Lord didn't say, why are you asking me that? Or didn't you, don't, don't you believe me? He didn't ask, he didn't rebuke him. You know, we have examples throughout scriptures where people were either rebuked for doubting God's promises to them, and others who asked for confirmation of a promise uh, the Lord made to them, he gave them a confirmation and he didn't rebuke them. So think about it. Here's one, for example, Gideon. Remember Gideon? He's one of the judges of, of Israel. Um, the, the angel came and spoke to Gideon. Gideon, you're going to deliver your people from the uh, Midianites. That's what it was. And uh, Gideon's like, who am I? You know, basically. And, and he asked for the Lord. We call it a fleece. You know, he said, hey, if I put this out in the, in overnight, you know, this, this lamb's wool and, and it's dry and the ground's wet, you know, can you, can you give me that sign? God gives him that sign. He says, well, how about if we flip it around, you know, everything else wet and that dry or whatever, you know, and God gave him that sign again. God didn't rebuke him. But, you know, we have a guy by the name of Zacharias in Luke. He's the father of John the Baptist. The angel Gabriel comes to him and tells him that, you know, they're going to, him and his wife Elizabeth, they're going to have a baby and they're going to name him John. And, and, and Zacharias is like, you know, how can this be? He gets rebuked by the angel Gabriel. Where's the difference there? Um, later on, Abram, Abraham is going to be visited by the Lord and the Lord's going to tell him, hey, in one year, Sarah's going to conceive and have a child. And Abram's going to laugh. <laughs> wow. Sarah's going to laugh too. And the Lord's going to say, why did Sarah laugh? And she gets rebuked for laughing. But Abraham didn't get rebuked for laughing. So what does that tell me? You know what that tells me? The Lord knows the heart of each person. He knows your heart. He knows, in each particular case, he knows the, the motive. He knows the emotions. He knows the heart attitude behind him. And you know what that tells me? Be honest with the Lord with your emotions. Be honest with the Lord. The Lord knows your heart anyways, so be honest with him. If you're doubting or you're questioning, let him, if he doesn't rebuke you, great. But if he does rebuke you, let him rebuke you. Let, learn from it. God knows your heart anyways. He wants a real relationship with him. And so be real with the Lord because he knows you anyways. And so basically, Abraham says, Lord, how shall I know that I'm going to inherit it? And you know what the Lord does? The Lord says, hey, okay, let's, okay, all right, Abram, let's draw up a contract. Let's, let's, let's sign a contract, you and I. Oh, you know, when, don't you like that when you're, you're asking someone to do something, they say, okay, let's put it in writing. It's like, finally, I, you know, I, I want to, okay, finally, writing. So the Lord, that's basically what the Lord says. Let's draw up a contract. Look at verse 9. So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old male, uh, excuse me, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. You go, what kind of contract is that? That's the ancient practice of literally cutting a covenant. 
It was literally making a, a contractual agreement. Jeremiah chapter 34 verses 18 through 19 refers to this uh, in one instance. But what did they do? They cut the sacrificial, because these are sacrificial animals. They cut these animals in two except the birds. And what they would do is they would lay each of uh, the half of the animal apart from each other. And uh, the two people that were entering into this contractual agreement, they would walk between the cut animals, basically. Just think of it. There's blood all over. They're walking between and they're reciting the, the, the terms of the contract. Why did they do that? Think about it. Man, this is like serious business. You're making a, a, an agreement and you're basically saying, hey, if I break this covenant, man, let bloodshed be upon me like these animals, basically. You, you, you understood the seriousness of the contract. You know what I was thinking about when I was studying it? I thought, you know what? I should start doing that as part of a wedding ceremony. Think about it, really. Because, you know, today people are, you know, they get married, they get divorced. Married, divorced, married, divorced, married, divorced. It's like they're, 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 uh, their vows don't mean anything. So maybe they need a better picture. So, you know, I, I probably won't do too many weddings, but, you know, can you imagine that? Okay, let's bring a lamb. We'll cut it in two, and then you can re- stand in the middle. Yeah, right, yeah, blood. Yeah, we'll, we'll wipe it off your dress. But, and repeat your vow after me. Could you imagine if we did that? Well, really, that's what this covenant, this picture is. It's a serious business. And so Abraham, he gets the animals. He cuts them in two. Of course, we're told he doesn't do it with the birds. Um, And then, and by the way, remember when God told Abraham to go and to look up into the stars and see if he can count the numbers of the stars? I'm guessing he didn't do that during the daytime. Because you wouldn't have seen too many stars. I'm guessing that that occurred at night. Presumably at night. God tells Abram to, to count the stars. I'm thinking now it's probably daylight. And uh, so Abram's now waiting for the Lord to show up so that they can walk between these two carcasses, or between these carcasses that are cut in half, uh, and, and, and do the contract, right? So I did another Google thing. Because verse 15, or excuse me, chapter 15, verse 11 says, And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So I thought, you know what, that's kind of interesting. So I Googled, and I said, are vultures nocturnal? And, it's, and came back and says, they're diurnal, which I didn't even know what that meant. But apparently that means that they feed during the daytime. They're not night, nighttime. You know, owls are nocturnal. Uh, vultures apparently are diurnal. They feed during the, during the daytime. So presumably, okay, Abram, look at the stars, see if you can count them, so shall your descendants be. Then Abram's like, you know, all, goes through all this stuff, and then God says, okay, let's cut a contract. So Abram gets the animals, cuts the contract, or cuts the animals, and now it's daytime, and the vultures are coming. And they're starting, they're like, hey, there's, there's a meal down there, buddies. And they're calling all their friends, and the vultures are starting to come down. And Abram's waiting for the Lord. Where's the Lord? And he's going out there, he's like shooing away the vulture. Every time the vultures come, get out of here, get out of here. This is, you know, don't do this, you know. We're waiting for the Lord to show up, and the Lord doesn't show up. Has that ever happened in your life? You've been praying for the Lord, and just, you just want him to meet you, and it's like, it seems like, where is he? He hasn't showed up yet. I can imagine Abram's like, okay, Lord, I don't understand this. And he's probably getting worn out there, uh, you know, trying to keep this. He's going to come sooner, sooner, sooner. Look at verse 12 says. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. So in other words, 
He spent the whole day waiting for the Lord to show up, and God didn't show up. And he's doing everything he can to keep the contract, you know, ready, keep the animals, you know, the, the birds off so that, you know, they can do this contractual agreement, and God never shows up. Now, does that mean that Abram got so tired of shooing away the vultures? I don't think so. I mean, it's possible. But I think it's a deep sleep that God purposely put Abram under, kind of like what he did with Adam. Remember when he, gave, when he created Eve, he, put, he put, gave Adam, caused Adam to have a deep sleep? I think it's the same kind of a thing here. God is supernaturally causing Abram to fall into a deep sleep. And it says, so now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. You know, whether Abram's having a dream or a vision, we're not told, but as Abram is sleeping, this, this heavy darkness, this, it's almost like you can feel the darkness. It, it falls upon Abram, and, he's, and it's, it's horrific. He's becoming frightened, and he, and he feels just oppressed. And no doubt, in my mind anyways, the Lord is giving Abraham a sense of what's going to happen to his descendants, a, a foretaste of the bondage that they're going to experience, that oppression that they're going to experience in Egypt. Verse 13 says, Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and will afflict them 400 years. Now, if you're a Bible student and you, you, you really dig in, both Exodus and Galatians tell us that Egypt, uh, the children of Egypt Israel's sojourn in Egypt lasted 430 years. And here it says 400 years. But you got to remember, when Joseph was like second in line to Pharaoh, they were treated pretty good that time until Joseph died. And then the Bible says another Pharaoh, another king rose up who didn't remember Joseph. And then at that point, they, they started being mistreated and they, they were turned from you know, guests to being slaves in <laughs> Egypt. So the Lord says, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, speaking of Egypt, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. Verse 14, And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Remember uh, Charlton Heston? Man, they had all kinds of stuff that they brought out with them, if you saw the movie. Um, You know what's interesting about that, though? True story, and it was a few years back. I don't know if it was the Egyptian government, but they, there was a lawyer in Egypt that wanted to sue Israel for reparations based on this passage of Scripture because of all the, the, the goods, not this Scripture, but in Exodus when the people gave the, the children of Israel all this wealth and stuff. There was actually a lawyer that, that had a lawsuit. I mean, we want reparations from the, from the state of Israel for all this stuff that happened back in Exodus. Fascinating. It's a true story. Verse 15. Now as for you, he's speaking to Abram, now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Remember back in verse 2, Abram said, Lord, what will you give me, seeing I go childless in the air of my house as Eliezer of Damascus? Abram, at at least 75 years old at this point, maybe older, probably a little bit older, he didn't think he had much more time left to live. And uh, God's running out of time to fulfill his promise through Abraham. Remember, that was one of the things that was on his heart. And God, again, speaks to Abram's heart. He says, Abram, you should be buried at a good old age. 
God wasn't kidding. In Genesis chapter 25, we find out that Abram died at 175 years. So if he had been, it was either anywhere between 75 to 86 years old at this point, um, he, was, he had at least anywhere from 89 to 100 years left to serve the Lord. Amazing. And he says, you shall go to your fathers in peace. Now, wait a minute. Abram's dad was Terah. And we're told in Scripture that his family and his parents were idolaters. So what do you mean he's going to go to his dad in, or his fathers in peace? I think it wasn't meant his natural family, but his spiritual family. Those like Seth, Enoch, Noah, Shem, those guys who were righteous in their generations, those who had faith in the God, of, uh, the God that was revealed to them, God who was revealed to them. That, that this is who he's being, uh, who's going to be going back to. You know, my father passed away, I don't know, a few years, uh, probably about seven years ago, something like that. Yeah, 2010, seven years ago. And uh, I was, uh, uh, you know, we knew, we knew his time was coming up. And, and uh, he, he has a relationship with the Lord. And, and uh, I remember looking, I had to say goodbye to him because I had to come back to Minnesota. He was out in California. And I knew, you know, that this was going to be the last time I was going to see him. And I just, I, I just spent some time, and I, and I just looked into his eyes, and I kept looking, I kept looking, I kept looking. I thought, you know, I want to I wanna get, just I want to see your eyes because I believe I'm going to see those eyes in heaven. So, and I'm going to recognize you. Because the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, says they were gathered to their, to their fathers. They were gathered to their people. And I think when you and I as believers, when we go to heaven, those family members that are believers, we're going to see them. I think there's going to be, we're going to recognize them, whether you know, we're going to be in glorified bodies, so I don't know, but that's why I'm like, at least I'm going to look at the eyes. I don't know if the rest of them, but I'm going to look at the eyes, and that's my hope, you know, that I'll, I'll see and recognize them, and I, I, think, I think Scripture supports that. But anyways, so the Lord tells Abram, you're going, to be, you're going to go to your fathers in peace. You're going to be buried at a good old age. Verse 16. But in the fourth generation, speaking of the children of Israel, but in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now there's a couple interesting observations from verse 16. First of all, back in verse 13, we're told that the children of Israel will be afflicted 400 years. But now here in verse 16, it says, in the fourth generation, they'll return here. So it sounds like what the Lord is saying is a generation is 100 years. Now, in Exodus, when the children of Israel, because of their disbelief, they had to wander the wilderness. They had to wander the wilderness for 40 years until that generation died in the wilderness. And then the next, their children would be the ones that would inherit the promised land. And in that case in Exodus, a generation was 40 years. So what is a generation? Is it 40 years or is it 100 years? You're like, well, why are you bringing this up? Well, here's why. In Matthew chapter 24, the disciples, you know, Jesus is talking about, they're, they're going, look at this temple. And the Lord starts saying, hey, you know, he starts saying, you know, there's not going to be one stone left upon the other of this building, you know. And then, he, and then they're, they're asking him, and then chapter 24, the disciples, they go, Lord, what's going to be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And the Lord starts speaking to him about all these things that are going to take place in Matthew chapter 24. Towards the end of Matthew chapter 24, verse 32, Jesus says this, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. 
So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Now, what generation was Jesus referring to? The disciples, that generation, they're long gone, right? 2,000 years ago, they've all died. So what generation? Well, I think, and Scripture, I think, supports the generation that sees the fig tree blossoming. Well, what's the fig tree? In scriptures, the fig tree is always a picture of Israel. And I believe what this is referring to is May, was it May 14th, 1948, when Israel became a nation. They saw that generation. What a miraculous thing. Out of 2,000 years, there's never been a culture after 2,000 years to come back and be a culture again with their own language, with their own religion, with their own monies, everything that they had before they've got again and they're in their land again. So May 14th, 1948, that fig tree blossomed. The generation that witnessed the creation of the state of Israel, this is what I think the Lord is speaking about prophetically, will not pass away until all these things that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24 takes place. Well, if a generation is 40 years, we're already past that. Because that would have been 1988, right? 40 years. 48 and 40, 88. But if a generation's 100 years, that's 2048. Now, what is it? I don't know. But you know what I was thinking about? That's only 31 years from now. Now, I'm not going gonna, I'm, I'm to say 2048, the rapture's happening, okay? I'm not going to say that. I'm, I'm not going to predict that. But what I am saying is I really believe that we are close to Christ's return for his church. And I, for one, want to be ready. I, for one, want to be about the Lord's business. Um, I don't want to be, you know, trying to build my own kingdom. I want to be like Abraham. You know, he was a sojourner. Two things about Abraham. He built, he planted, he built, he set up tents wherever he went. Man, he, his life, he was a pilgrim in this world. He had the promised land, but he was still a pilgrim, man. He didn't, he didn't settle down. He knew there was an eternal home for himself. Not only that, everywhere he went, he built an altar. Man, he was a worshiper of the Lord. I want that to be my life, man. Everywhere I go, I'm a pilgrim. Everywhere I go, I worship the Lord. It doesn't matter where I'm at. I'm going to worship the Lord. Well, so the first observation from this verse i think you know the lord's prophecy in matthew 24 has not failed because we don't know how long god views this generation but that leads to my second observation how does god measure time anyways i mean we measure it chronologically right you know i'm getting old how does god measure it well look what he says there in the fourth generation they shall return here why for the iniquity of the amorites is not yet complete See, God doesn't measure time the way you and I do. I measure it chronologically, you know. I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting up in age, you know. I'm starting to feel more pains. I know that, you know, eventually my time's going to come uh, to meet the Lord. But God doesn't measure time chronologically. God measures time morally, morally. He says the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Well, the Amorites, that's generic basically for the Canaanites. The Canaanites, man, I tell you, you look into what they were all about. Um, they believed blasphemous, blasphemous things about God. They practiced incest, homosexuality, bestiality, child sacrifice, and more. These guys were corrupt. They were wicked. 
They were very <laughs> wicked. And uh, God knew, hey, for 400 years, because people look at, at, at the Bible and say, well, the God of the Old Testament, he's just this bloodthirsty, evil person. And Jesus is this, you know, this nice turn the other cheek. You know, it's like there's two different gods going on here. Think about this. God gave them 400 years to repent. 400 years to repent. God knew there was going to be a point where the Canaanites were beyond repentance. And in the days of Joshua, he commands the children of Israel to wipe out man, woman, child, and beast. Even the animals, just wipe them all out. They, they, they were beyond repentance. Now, there was a few exceptions. Remember Rahab, the harlot in Jericho? The Lord spared her. In fact, she's in uh, the genealogy. She's one of Christ's, you know, ancestors. I mean, she was in the, the the bloodline of King David and stuff, which Jesus descended from. So there was Rahab the prostitute. There was also a gentleman by the name of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite. He was a Canaanite also. His his, his father was a Canaanite, and and the Lord spared him. So there was there's you know there's individuals that the Lord knew and 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 uh, saved and and you know, didn't destroy. But God measures time morally, not chronologically. 400 years. How many years has the United States been a nation? 200, what, I don't know, two-something, 250? No, not 250, because we haven't celebrated that yet. I can't do my math. I'm not fast on my, on my feet when it comes to math, but, um, you know, Lord's measuring our time as a nation morally, too. How much time do we have left? You think of all the stuff that we're doing, the, the, the iniquity, the sins that are... You know, that's why we're doing this flood run outreach. Not because these people are so wicked, but we want to reach as many as we can for Jesus Christ. However we can. And this is one way. They come to us and we just get to pray with them. We get to bless them. We get to, we get to talk with them. We get to share the love of Christ with them. What a beautiful... We want to do that. Um, but there's going to come a time where our nation... You know, I look at I look at uh, prophecy in the old t- in the in the book of Revelation and Daniel and stuff. I don't see the U.S. mentioned in there. So where are we going to be at that point? Verse seventeen. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold there appeared a smoking oven, and a burning torch that passed between those, those pieces. A smoking oven, I think it symbolizes God's presence, right? The Shekinah glory of God. That, that Remember when, when uh, the Lord would, would enter into the, above the mercy seat in the tabernacle? I mean, the, the smoke from the temple, it would be overwhelming. It would just, you know, uh, amazingly. The, the smoking of the mountain, uh, Mount Sinai. Uh, just a picture of the awesome presence of God. And then the burning torch, I think it symbolizes God's holiness. Remember the burning bush in, in, uh, in uh, the wilderness and Moses came up and, and the Lord God says, hey, take your shoes off. You're standing on holy ground. And that, that, that burning holy fire. The Bible says our God is a consuming fire. This is a purity of God. And so we see this, this representation of the Lord himself in, in the smoking oven and this burning torch, and he passes through the midst of the animals, and it doesn't happen until Abram's in a deep sleep. There's nothing he can do. He's just exhausted. He's just like dead, you know. There's nothing he can do, and 
He's not even able to shoo the vultures away. He's just like there. And the Lord is the one who goes through. And here's the picture here. Here's the application. God didn't want Abram to make the contract with him. God made the contract with Abram. Abram had nothing to do with the contract. It's all based on God and his word and his faithfulness. It had nothing to do with him. And so God cuts the covenant himself with no help from Abraham. And you know, that's a picture of your and my salvation. It's not until you and I surrender and by faith, we put our faith in Christ's finished work on the cross. When we put our trust in him and him alone, there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. You don't make a covenant with God. God makes a covenant with you. Some people say, well, I found the Lord. No, 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 no. The Lord found you. The Lord saved you. Verse 18, on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, which those were giants, by the way, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. You know, even under the golden age of Israel and David and Solomon were kings, they have never possessed all of this land that was promised to them. But I think... I believe they will during the kingdom age, during the millennium. I'm, I'm sure they will at that point. And so, you know, I look at this. Uh, you know, here the Lord comes and he speaks to Abram. And a couple times here, and he gives him a vision. How does the Lord come and speak to you? Um, you know, sometimes we like to, you know, people say, well, the Lord spoke to my heart. And, said, and the, God does do that. But you know how God predominantly speaks to us? It's through his word. That's how he predominate. Now, he does speak to us. You know, we can't put God in a box. He does reveal things. He gives visions and dreams, but, but primarily he speaks to us through the word of God. And God has revealed to us that you and I are made, made righteous through faith in Christ Jesus and through faith alone. It has nothing to do with what you and I have earned. It's only on, based on what Christ did on the cross for us. And he finished the work. Remember, he said, it's done. Tell us die. It's finished. He paid the price for us. What a blessing. This morning...